0: When our kids were little, I mean really little, like babies, I had a love-hate relationship with bedtime. And it was primarily because our kids weren't very good at it. And it seems like we had a lot of friends who when it came to bedtime will tell us stories like they would take their uh, young child and go, okay, time for bed, and get them all set, put him in their crib and kiss good night. The baby would fuss for about 30 seconds and sleep for 14 hours. And I'd be like, I hate you, we can no longer be friends. Because this just was not our experience. It was a whole lot different than that. But there came this moment um, every night, mostly later than earlier, where I'd be holding them and bouncing them, and all of a sudden, you could see something come over them and they'd start to get a little bit droopy, and then they'd settle in and snuggle down, and pretty soon they'd close their eyes, and they'd fall asleep. And I would think, I'm winning, yay! Um, But it was this wonderful moment, because after a lot of fussing, after a lot of whatever was going on, all of a sudden they were just overcome with this sense of peace and there's nothing quite so peaceful looking as a baby that is sound asleep. It's just like this moment where everything is all right. And I used to remember looking at my kids going, you have no idea of the dangers of the world. Right now, your world is okay and you're sound asleep because everything is good. You're at peace. And I always found myself longing for that in that moment, that that ability to feel like I am totally secure and everything is well and everything is gonna be okay, just a deep sense of peace. And I think maybe we all long for that. Peace, when you find it, you realize why you've missed it so much. When you don't have it, you long for it. And the good news is, that it's something that's part of God's plan. And God's plan is, what he wants for us, is kind of where we left off last week. We talked about the Christian worldview. Jesus is Lord, we are broken, God isn't happy with the situation, God is fixing the situation, he has a plan, and God is using us. And so today we're gonna talk more about just exactly how that works. So we're in Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 through 22. Paul writes, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So this passage starts, once again, like many passages in Paul do, with the word therefore. It's a connecting word. And basically, Paul is saying, because you've been saved by grace, not because of anything you did or deserved, and because God has created you for a purpose, Now this, so remember, and so let me make a couple of points about that. First of all, what Paul is going to talk about is that we used to be outsiders. That's what he's talking about. Remember, you who formerly were Gentiles by birth, you were called uncircumcised by the circumcision. You were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship. You were foreigners to the covenant. You were without hope, without God in uh, the world. We were the outsiders. Now, if we're on the inside of something and we realize that other people are left out, we tend to get very philosophical about it. Well, it is what it is, you know, their lot in life and all that. When we're on the outside, though, and we don't have what others do, it's a justice issue. This is unfair. This is an outrage. We were outsiders and had no claim on becoming insiders. It's very important to start there. We are the ones who've been grafted into God's plan. And we shouldn't forget that because everything that Paul is talking about is something that has been done for us, something that we didn't deserve. It's another reminder about grace. We don't deserve to be here. We were outsiders But we were made insiders through what Jesus has done for us. And this should fill us with a sense of wonder, the way that God has included us. Remember when you first came to know Jesus? Remember what that was like when you realized that your life could be different, that you could have different priorities? Remember how good that was? And then we have a tendency to get busy and we forget. It's why David in Psalm 51 says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Help me remember what it was like when I first knew you. This sense of wonder that the God of the universe not only notices me, but actually cares about me. What this passage points out though is that there are insiders and there are outsiders and God isn't cool with that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. So how did the situation of having insiders and outsiders arise? Well, I'm glad you asked. Most of the Old Testament is the story of God's plan to redeem the world. He chooses a couple, Abraham and Sarah, and he makes them into a family and then he makes that family into a nation. And the purpose of this nation, the Jews or Israel, their purpose is to bless the whole world with the knowledge of the one true God. They're supposed to be like priests. A priest is a person that stands in the gap and connects people to God and God to people. They're supposed to function that way. They're not just supposed to enjoy the fact that they are special. In order to do that though, to be a blessing to the rest of the nations, to introduce other people to God, God tells his people to be different, not weird. There appears to be some confusion about that in some circles, but to be different from other people in their values and their priorities. And some of the things that make them different are keeping a certain set of rules which set them apart, made them different by what they ate and how they acted. And some of the things that make them different are their priorities. Like, they aren't supposed to have a king because God will be their king. They aren't supposed to have a large army because God will protect them. They aren't supposed to have hard and fast borders that they would protect through treaties and agreements. They're supposed to let foreigners come in to experience the blessings of the land and the blessing of knowing God, and God would provide their security. They weren't supposed to jealously guard their wealth. They were supposed to care for the needy and the widows and everyone who had less because God promised to supply their needs exceedingly, abundantly. And this was all supposed to be a sign that there was a God who was at work, redeeming and recreating, establishing a system where there was a different way, the kingdom of God. But Israel failed at this. They wanted to be like other nations. They reject God and they say give us a king so that we can be like all of the other nations and God says you'll be sorry. And it doesn't take too long before they are. It's a great story, you'll find it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They wanted a king like everybody else, they exploited the poor, they neglected the orphans and the widows. And These are just like what the minor prophets talk about all the time. It's just almost standardized. Exploit the poor, don't care for the orphans and the widows, and they also fought for dominance over other nations. They went to war. They twisted the law that they had been given, which was supposed to mark them out as different to be used by God. They twisted it so that it made them feel superior to other people. And you hear this superiority when the leaders of the people tell Jesus, we have Abraham as our father, we are the in crowd. Or when they refer to other people like in this Ephesians passage as the uncircumcision, it's basically a way of saying those dirty people. It's a racial slur. God wanted to use them as a part of his mission to love and care for people and to bring people back to him. Instead, they use their relationship to God to feel superior. But since God is not cool with insiders and outsiders, God has brought us near. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is how we get to Jesus. God chose Israel and Israel failed. So God chose one person out of Israel, the God man Jesus instead and Jesus doesn't fail. One of the things I think that we can take away from this is that God doesn't give up. Even when we fail, God finds a way. It could have been really easy. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, it's a very frustrating group of stories because God reveals himself to people, turn the page, they've forgotten, they do something else. But God never gives up. God puts another plan into place because God sees us. God sees you. God sees your situation. God cares about your situation. God cares about you and God will not give up no matter how far away you wander from him. That's the core of the heart of God. Which means that maybe sometimes we need to ask, and I think this gets to the heart and the core of the passage, who else is far away? Who else does God care about? I mean, Jesus tells parables about this stuff. There's the lost sheep where the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes out and finds the one and brings them back because the priority is on the lost. Jesus tells the priority of the woman who has a bunch of money but she's lost one coin and she turns the house over until she finds it. Again, the importance of God seeking the lost and then the ultimate story of the prodigal son where the father will not rest until the son has come home again. In all of those, there is this picture of God who goes out looking and that will come up later in the passage. But there are divisions in humanity. It gets worse than the inside and the outside. And so God deals with this in verse 14, talking about Jesus, it says, "'For he himself is our peace. "'He has made the two groups one, "'circumcision and uncircumcision, "'insiders and outsiders, "'and has destroyed the barrier, "'the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and, re- and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near." There's that God seeking again. God doesn't wait for us to come to him. God goes wherever we are, how far away we are, how close we are, and sends the preaching of peace to us. So what is Paul coming against in this passage? He's coming against hostility toward people who are different. And it's very easy when you're on the inside or when you're a big fish in a little pond to draw a very small circle of the people that you're comfortable with, the people that are like you, the people that you want to be with, and exclude other people. And then it's very easy to demonize other people or begin to think of them as being dirty or different or somehow less than you. Now Paul talks about Israel here and he does this for two reasons. One, it's his context. It's where he lives. It's what you'd expect him to talk about. But he's also talking about them because God is at work through them. They're part of the plan of God and in the world. But it's not like Israel is worse than any other country or worse than any other people group in their tendency towards nationalism and their tendency towards a belief that they and the way they do things are superior to everybody else. You don't have to look far to see the terrible divisions within humanity, the terrible attacks that people visit on people who are different from genocide on the level of the nation state to painful words and actions that are directed, that have been directed at people that we know and love, people that we know and love in this church. There are children of this church who've been called the N-word while walking down the street, somebody screaming out of their car. There have been members of our congregation who have had racial slurs painted on their houses here in Gig Harbor. There are people in our congregation who are used to being followed in stores because they're suspected of shoplifting because of their color. They and them versus we and us. You hear it all sorts of ways. All old people are, fill in the blank. Oh, millennials, they're all. And basically what it does is it reduces people to stereotypes. And once you've reduced people to stereotypes, once you have stopped seeing them as individual humans, it's really easy to make them less than you. But Jesus comes into this and he brings us peace. He reconciles us, he breaks down the dividing wall. And like I said at the beginning, when I used to hold my kids and put them to bed at night, how I long for peace. Every morning I get up and I dread reading my newsfeed. I dread reading what happened overnight. I mean, what crazy thing happened in Ukraine? What crazy thing happened in some major American city or any other number of places around the world? I mean, I just, I don't even wanna know because there has been so much horrible news lately, so much uh, war, so much people hating each other. Um, It's gotten to the point where every time I get a text, I just assume it's gonna be something bad. But Paul says three different times. Verse 14, he is our peace. Verse 15, thus making peace. Verse 17, he came and he preached peace. And that's what I have to remember when I read my newsfeed. That's what I have to remember when I look at the horrible things that people do out of hatred or dumb stuff. Jesus is bringing peace peace. Now, what's peace? We generally think of peace as being the lack of war or the lack of conflict, but it is so much more than that. It's like my kids. Peace is when everything is right with the world. Peace is when every person is whole. Peace is when you don't have to worry about anything. There are no threats. There are no worries. It's that moment where something settles over you and you feel this deep sense of calm that everything is right with the world that's peace it's the look on my kids face when they finally went to sleep and it says that jesus brings this to us by setting aside in his flesh cross language he did for us what the law couldn't do because the law basically led to arrogance I keep this law, you don't, therefore I am better than you. God gave me the law, God didn't give it to you, therefore I am better than you. What we realize, what Paul is driving at, is that followers of Jesus, we realize, it's an old cliche, but I think it's true, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Nobody's higher than anybody else despite skin color, despite where you were born, despite social, economic status, anything, any category that you could come up with where we could have insiders and outsiders, it don't matter at the foot of the cross because Jesus has come to bring us peace and to set those things aside. He comes to us even if we're far away to pull you out of whatever circumstances you're in and bring you peace. I think that's stunning. A couple of things that I think about that is remember Jesus comes to us and that his intent is peace. He's not mad, his intent is to bring you peace. Jesus has even called the Prince of Peace. And then those of us who have received the peace of Christ, God enlists us to help bring that peace to others. And I wonder, during, specifically during these crazy times, How can we think it's enough to pray for peace, which we should do, I'm not saying we shouldn't, do pray for peace. But how can we think it's enough to pray for peace and not work for peace where we can? There's this great verse that Paul writes in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12, verse 18, where he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Which means that we have some agency. We can't really bring peace at the nation state level, but there's an awful lot of lack of peace, lack of of wholeness, dividing walls, hatred that we come into contact with on a regular basis. And we have some agency with that. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Part of the plan of God is for us to be peacemakers. And I think that there are some tricks to that, some things to acknowledge. Peace between people comes from knowing people as people. It's really easy to think of people groups as they, them, those people, and then you get to know them. And all of a sudden they become real people and they're not a caricature like they were before. If there are people that are on the other side of some divide for you, It will change you, it will help bring peace in many situations if you get to know those people. Uh, There was a person who used to go to our church, doesn't go to church here anymore, who used to say to me when I talked about stuff like this, I'm tired of being told to get a friend who is a different color. I'm tired of being told to get a friend who is different than me. I don't know anyone like that. And I always thought, where to begin? Um, I know lots of people who don't naturally have friends that are different than they are, but they've gone to the furniture bank and they have donated their time. They serve there. They get out into the community. They meet other people. It's possible. If you can't do that, then read some books. There's this great book called Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. And Megan has used it a number of times in some of the groups that she does. And it is a wonderful book about how we can reach out to people that are different from us. And maybe many of you took advantage of the showing and the discussion on Just Mercy this past week. That's a great start. You can expose yourself to other people's experiences. And once we understand people's experiences it helps us to understand people and it helps to bring peace between people who are different peace comes from charitable assumptions about others i don't know what's going on with everybody and i can assume the worst or i can assume the best why not assume the best because it's hardly ever the worst peace comes about making charitable assumptions from people peace comes from generous actions sometimes You got to just decide to let stuff go in order to keep the peace or to make the peace. I'm not talking about it being abusive, letting that slide. I'm not talking about coddling people. I'm just talking that sometimes in in interpersonal relationships, you got to just let things slide. Peace comes from being willing to be uncomfortable. To put yourself in situations that might be outside of your wheelhouse, that might make you nervous and anxious and uncomfortable. Paul says that Jesus brings us peace by his death on a cross. I'm thinking that might have been uncomfortable. And that opens up the door to me being able to be uncomfortable in certain situations in order to try and understand people and build bridges. Peace comes, I think, sometimes from not not being defensive. I don't understand everybody's experiences. They haven't been mine. I don't have insight into everyone's heart. I don't know what anybody is thinking. And I realize that in almost every situation, I can learn and I can grow. And that is much easier to do if I'll lay aside my defensiveness, if I'll lay aside having to be right, and if I'll just open myself up to listening to other people's experiences and entering into their world. Peace comes from having hard conversations and knowing that you can get through it with mutual respect and the grace of God. So we have all of this going on but God unites us to his people. Verse 18, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Paul's gonna use two metaphors here. They're both biblical. He's gonna call us a family. We're the family of God. And that shows how close we have been brought. We were once outsiders and now we're family but we're made family with other people that are different from us. And, you know, we're all reminded that family is different every Thanksgiving. But he makes a lot of people who are very different one. And the church, this family of God, is characterized by a we instead of just I. There is this collective nature about what God does for us. And this is a little bit difficult for us to to understand because we are so immersed in Western individualism. It's all about me, my preferences, how it affects me, and the church and God calls us to a we and an us and include other people and to understand other people. And so we see this we as an evidence of change, that we're able to go from me and mine to we and us. And the church is one of the things that introduces us to this idea of we. It's also why sometimes we use certain words. It's to remind us that there is more going on than just us. We are a part of a larger body. Billions of people around the planet and billions of people that have gone before, the church visible and the church invisible. It's why when we have communion, I say the same words that have been said for 2,000 years that go all the way back to the Apostle Paul. When we do baptisms, I say the same words that have been said over baptisms for thousands of years. When you get married, we say the same words that have helped people enter into the sacrament of marriage for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's an acknowledgement that we belong to a much bigger stream than just us. There is a we. And then Paul moves on to a different metaphor. He goes from the family to a holy temple where God dwells. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. A temple is where you find God. In Jesus, God is establishing a new group of people who've died to their own ways, old ways, and been raised together with Christ. And God's plan is for this group of people, the church, to be the location where he's encountered. The church is the temple. We are made a part of a building where God dwells and people find him. There's this great picture of how this is gonna come to completion one day with God dwelling in and among his people in Revelation chapter 21. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God is creating this new reality by bringing peace between people to his own glory. I think, I contrast that with some of the crazy things I've heard over the past several years from Christian folks. I can't go to church with you because you voted for Trump. I can't go to church with you because you like Brandon. I can't go to church with you because you're anti-vax. I can't go to church with you because fill in the blank. And what do all of those things do? They put the emphasis on us and our preferences. They put the emphasis on our choices and our freedoms. They take the emphasis off of the one who shed his blood on the cross so that we might have a relationship with him and that we might have peace with one another, which leads to my last point. Left up to their own devices, things tend to decay. That's the second law of thermodynamics and a cursory reading of the Lord of the Flies. Things decay, things get bad, but the church is designed to have a renewing effect, to bring peace, to bring hope, to live in a new way. That's part of God's plan. So let me ask you three questions. What was it like when you first came to know Jesus? Number two, what walls are up in your life that divide you from other people? And number three, what is one thing you can do this week to bring peace?